ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jen Leake. This is Rear Vision. We've been processing the food we eat for thousands of years, gradually making it easier to digest, safer and more reliable. Along the way, though, a much more complex type of processing has taken hold, industrially manufactured food products. These foods fill our supermarkets and convenience stores, but in recent years, they've started being referred to as ultra-processed. And that's our focus this week. What makes a food ultra-processed? What's the value in categorising food according to their level of processing? And how did they become so dominant? The salt content of Australian processed foods is rising inexorably. And the impact, because processed foods on supermarket shelves are where we get most of our salt, could be up to 2,000 people dying prematurely each year. Ultra-processed foods are typically um, foods that come in packages and they typically include a long list of ingredients, so things like artificial sweeteners and emulsifiers. When it comes to obesity, the food industry's own labelling systems don't seem to be getting through. More than 63% of Australian adults are now overweight or obese. There's now an argument for government action to make food companies clarify those labels. They do include things like diet soda, things that we might consider to be relatively healthy for us, also things like flavoured yoghurt, fruit drinks. The term ultra-processed comes from the Nova food classification system that was developed in the late 2000s. It divides food and drinks into four groups based on their level of processing, not their nutrient profile. Group one, minimally processed, fruits, vegetables, unprocessed meats. Group two, processed culinary ingredients, stuff like oil, butter and sugar. Group three, processed foods, freshly baked bread, simple cheeses, canned vegetables. And then group four, ultra-processed. Marion Nessel is a molecular biologist and nutritionist. My operating definition of ultra-processed foods is you can't make it in your home kitchen. Um, If you can make it in your home kitchen, it's not ultra-processed because the ultra-processing requires ingredients that you don't have and machinery that you don't have. What makes foods ultra-processed is the their complete differentiation from what a real food looks like. And the easiest example is corn. Corn on the cob is unprocessed. Canned corn is processed. And Dorito chips are ultra-processed. You can't make those. You don't have the flavors, you don't have the additives, and you don't have the machinery. Concerns around food processing and how it might impact our health have been around for quite a while. In the early 20th century in particular, when the industry was a pretty wild place for the consumer, it was totally unregulated and manufacturers did all sorts of stuff to make foods cheaper to make and last longer. Kevin Hall is from the National Institute of Health in the United States. Industries were trying to preserve foods. We didn't have refrigeration like we do now. And companies were adding all sorts of adulterants to foods. It was actually one of the reasons why the Food and Drug Administration was created in the United States was because of all of the adulterants in foods. And a famous researcher at the 
U.S. Department of Agriculture named Harvey Wiley had conducted studies that are kind of analogous to ours. He was feeding people foods that were adulterated with various things like formaldehyde was added to milk. <laughs> it's like really awful stuff. And he documented how sick these things were making people. So there was a big wave of, you know, really acute food illness that was caused by manufacturers trying to make cheap foods available to people that were preserved as best as they possibly could. But in doing so, they were adding things to the foods that were making people sick acutely. So now I think we have an analogous problem. They're making people sick chronically, diabetes and cardiometabolic diseases. Um, so it's a little bit of a harder problem because we don't see the effects immediately. But kind of industrial processing of foods was really kind of launched in that sort of turn of the 20th century as more and more people went from their farms to work in cities and, and people relied on others to, to prepare the foods or at least source the foods. A lot of industrially produced foods were developed much earlier than you might think. Hydronated oils, which help keep food fresher for longer and later became known as trans fats, were invented in the early 1900s. But the technology really took off during World War II. Much of it was led by the United States. Fighting a war far away, they had to figure out how to feed millions of soldiers with cheap, palatable food with a long shelf life. Money was poured into research and development, and a whole range of products and technologies came out of this period. Laura Shapiro is a culinary historian. There was, for instance, in 1946, there was apparently a bonanza of canned meats. Only 12 different varieties were available before the war, but post-war shelves will boast 40 varieties, so along with the indestructible luncheon meat known as Spam. They also had treat more prem snack. These were their names. There were canned ham and sweet potato dinners, canned pork with applesauce, canned bacon. They had dehydrated potatoes. They had powdered orange juice. They had a thing called tato nuts, which was a new potato tidbit notable for strong resistance to weather conditions. This you would need if you were, you know, fighting a war. The product was supposed to remain crisp and crunchy for months. During World War II, they had, uh, you know, developed this extraordinary amount of new technologies to produce food, and they basically wanted to be able to capitalise on that growth and convince the civilian that these foods might be good for them as well. There was a, a psychological effort had to go with it. You had to persuade people not only that this is good, how delicious this canned hamburger is, but you had to persuade people that that's food and that opening a can or a box is cooking. And that, I think, was harder than persuading people that it was food and that it tasted good. To persuade homemakers that this was cooking, that it counted, that if you made dinner by opening two boxes and adding one thing to another and adding water and put it in the oven and it comes out in 10 minutes, that's cooking. That was a very, very big thing to uh, to try to get people to assimilate the psychology of cooking, to redefine the word cooking so that it meant opening a box. That went against everything that people knew and felt 
that went against the whole power of the kitchen, your whole sense of command over your role as a as a wife and a mother and a cook. It was a huge challenge to that. And for that very reason, along with the fact that a lot of the food was terrible, but for that reason, it was extremely difficult for the food industry to push these products across. The food industry became a kind of one message industry, which was you don't have time to cook. It is too old fashioned to cook. Uh, your grandmother had the drudgery of cooking, but you are so smart and modern. You don't have to do that anymore. That was the message that went out starting right after the war. And this rapid expansion of processed food products came at a time when cooking at home had actually never been easier. People had running water. People had gas and electricity. You could buy a chicken with the feathers already plucked. You could buy potatoes that had been scrubbed. It was way easier, simpler, and quicker to get a simple meal on the table than it ever had been. So it's not like women are standing in the kitchen door begging to have their lives made easier, which is the classic way that the food industry tried to advertise these new things. Oh, housewives are begging for... Nobody was begging for anything. They could do it. This all happened faster in the United States than it did here in Australia. But the introduction of fast food and later technologies like the microwave further changed people's perception of what a meal looked like and just how easy it could be to prepare. Fast food, uh, McDonald's and all that had been, you know, growing like crazy since, uh, certainly since the 50s. And the idea of fast food where you would, you would go in, you would get something very quickly, eat it very quickly. It Technically, it was a meal. That is to say it was a hamburger and French fries. But there was nothing around it that made it a meal. You may not even have sat at a table to eat it. And that idea that sort of speed, fat, salt, and uh, and sweet, that's enough for food. You don't need anything else. You don't have to call it a meal. You don't have to call it nutrition or anything else. That's enough. I think that helped generate a lot of these other products. And the other thing that did happen in the 80s was in the United States, the blossoming of microwave ovens at home. There was a time in the early 1980s when nobody had a microwave oven. Two minutes later, they were standard in every kitchen. It was one of the most amazing takeovers of of a piece of technology. The food industry immediately produced, with microwave ovens in mind, a gazillion things. You could have a microwavable burrito, microwavable instant cakes. They had microwavable milkshakes. Every single thing on earth was made in kind of single-serving, microwavable form. Big changes in the food system have also helped drive the production of ultra-processed foods. They're typically manufactured using ingredients extracted from high-yielding crops like corn, soy and wheat. Phil Baker is from the School of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences at Deakin University. The mechanisation of agriculture, you saw the intensive use of fertilisers and other petrochemical-based inputs, you know, pesticides, herbicides, the science into that went into producing these very high-yielding crops. And it was all about efficiency. It was all about producing as much yield as possible. 
And this created a huge glut of cheap ingredients for the ultra-processed food industry. And that's really been a big part of the whole story since then, is that these companies can essentially manufacture a huge diversity of products. So we see this apparent diversity on our supermarket shelves from just a small number of props. But it's also this food science and the design, this huge investments by the companies in the design of these products to be super tasty, the cheap commodity ingredients, plus the hyper palatability, which sells more of the product. And then you combine that with really intensive marketing, which also drives demand for the products, generates consumption, you get a very, very profitable product. And that's also very much part of this this whole story. Marion Nessel says the 1980s also saw a change in corporate culture in the United States, which had an impact on the big food companies and their drive to sell mass-produced processed food. In uh, 1980-81, when the head of General Electric made a speech that had an enormous impact on Wall Street. And in that speech, he said, enough of blue chip stocks that give long, slow returns on investment. We want higher returns on investment right now. This was called the shareholder value movement, and it was bought by Wall Street. And so what that meant was that you not only had to make a profit, but you had to grow your profit every 90 days and report growth to Wall Street every 90 days. And if you didn't, your stockholders got upset, your CEO got upset. This was terrible for everybody, but it was particularly bad for food companies because they were already trying to sell food in an environment in which there were too many calories. And then they got a break, and that was with the election of President Reagan, who came in on a deregulatory agenda. A lot of rules about marketing were um, thrown out, and it became easier for food companies to market their products so they could use health claims and um, they could sell food everywhere. Um, But what food companies were mostly trying to do was to get people to eat more food and buy more food. And they did that um, in several ways. They put food in places where it had never been put before. Bookstores, libraries, clothing stores. Food is everywhere now. Food companies also did research to promote snacking that you will do better if you eat eight small meals a day than if you eat three big ones. So that in the United States, at least, people began eating more. So, you know, this has to do a lot with politics. The ultra-processed food industry has often converted, you know, less processed foods into ultra-processed varieties. So yogurt is the classic example, right? You know, uh, plain yogurt or even yogurt with like a fruit puree is a processed um, food. But as soon as you add those ingredients, you know, to reduce the costs, to change the the, the palatability, uh, the taste of the yogurt, you add the flavorings, uh, other cosmetic additives, uh, it becomes ultra processed. And then the companies often put claims on the front of the products you know, to promote this image that they are healthy as well. So it's actually a less healthy product because it's been ultra-processed, but it's promoted 
you know, using these nutrition and health claims. So when and why did the concept of ultra-processed foods emerge? I mentioned earlier the Nova Food Classification System, which divides food and drinks into four categories based on their level of processing. It was developed by Brazilian researchers, led by Carlos Monteiro, a professor of public health at the University of Sao Paulo in the late 2000s. Looking through data which had been gathered since the 1970s, it was clear Brazilians were buying way less fat, sugar and salt than they had in the past but the population was getting fatter. It turns out they hadn't actually cut down on salt, sugar and fat. They were just consuming them in new forms, ultra-processed foods. Uh, His idea was to divide foods into four categories based on their level of processing and to distinguish unprocessed or minimally processed uh, foods culinary ingredients and processed foods from a separate category that he called ultra-processed, which he defined as industrially produced for the purpose of replacing real foods, extremely profitable. You can't make them in your home kitchen because you don't have either the machinery or the ingredients to make them. And once that definition came into play, it became possible for uh, people to do research on it. I heard about this group from Brazil who had come along and said, essentially, you know what, nutrients aren't really all that important at all. It's really the thing that is driving diet-related diseases is the extent and purpose of processing of the foods that we have. Foods that undergo, you know, massive degree of industrial processing, Um, are the foods that are really bad for us. And they came up with a new categorization system that completely ignored nutrients and basically just classified foods um, according to the extent and purpose of processing. And so when I first heard that, of course, I thought, well, you can't really ignore nutrients. I mean, we've got this long-standing history of success in nutrition science. I just didn't buy it. So, Kevin and his team at the National Institute of Health put together the first randomised control trial, comparing ultra-processed and minimally processed diets. 20 healthy adults spent a month living at the research hospital. For the first two weeks, they were given a diet made up of ultra-processed foods. For the other two weeks, a diet made up of minimally processed foods, and they were given double the recommended serving portions on both diets. We gave them simple instructions, eat as much or as little of the foods as you want. We designed two different diets, and those diets were matched for salt, sugar, fat, fiber. And so the idea of this study was, if it was something about the nutrients, which we were trying to match, the salt, the sugar, the fat, the fiber, the carbs, um, et cetera, then basically people should just choose to eat the same amount on both diets. It doesn't matter if it's coming from ultra-processed foods or not, and they should eat more or less the same number of calories and shouldn't have any weight differences or body fat differences between the two groups. And so that was my kind of presumption going in. And when people were exposed to the ultra-processed diet, uh, they ate about 500 calories per day more. 
than the minimally processed diet, and they were gaining weight and gaining body fat. And when we swapped them to the um, minimally processed diet, they just spontaneously lost weight and lost body fat. And they're reporting the same degree of hunger and satisfaction and eating capacity and fullness and things like that. So to kind of match those same levels of appetite, they're eating vastly different amounts of calories and they're changing their weights accordingly, although they weren't aware of it because they weren't they had their backs turned to the scale and mm. they were wearing loose fitting clothing so they couldn't tell if they were getting tighter or looser. I mean, it's hard to explain if you're not familiar with this kind of research. Most dietary comparison studies feel like they've hit the jackpot if they can show a difference of 50 calories. This was 500. So what is it about these foods that makes us consume more? Well, we just don't know yet, but there are a couple of leading theories. When Kevin examined the ultra-processed diets used in the studies more closely, two features stood out. Number one, these foods deliver more calories per gram. Primarily because in the processing of the foods, you're extracting a lot of water. So you're essentially concentrating down the nutrients in ultra-processed foods, as opposed to minimally processed foods where the cellular structure is intact of the, of the foods that you're providing to people. And that goes along with a lot of water. And so as a result, those fresh and minimally processed foods tend to have a much lower, uh, what we call energy density, calories per gram. Number two, the combination and concentration of sugar, salt, fat and carbs found in ultra-processed foods. If you looked at the foods that were on the plate and asked whether or not pairs of nutrients exceeded certain thresholds, so did we present people with individual foods that were both high in fat and sugar, um, or both high in carbs and salt, or high in fat and salt? These are the so-called hyperpalatable foods. Did we present people with more of those kinds of foods? And I was initially skeptical that we may have done that because we matched for salt and sugar and carbs and fat um, over the entire diet. But in terms of individual foods on the plate, indeed, we ended up presenting people with more so-called hyperpalatable foods that cross these pairs of nutrient thresholds. My name is Stefan Guillenet. I have a background in neuroscience and obesity research, and I'm the author of The Hungry Brain. The human brain is hardwired to have certain food preferences. So everyone in Australia, in the United States, in China likes salt, likes sugar, likes fat, likes starch. These are just kind of basic hardwired tendency of the, tendencies of the human brain. And those are properties that tend to cause dopamine release in the brain, which is a chemical that's responsible for learning and motivation, including for food. And so when you take the properties in food, you can think of them as the active ingredients in food that cause dopamine to spike in the brain, and you concentrate those more and you mix them together, you're going to get foods that are more motivating and more habit-forming than unprocessed foods that tend to contain lower concentrations of those substances that don't combine them in the same ways and that also have less desirable substances in them like bitter flavors or fiber that dilute those those substances. Personally, I think there's probably not much difference between 
brownies that you make in your own kitchen and brownies you might buy in the grocery store that are ultra processed and produced in a factory. I will say that that is a matter of ongoing debate. So there are some people who are saying, well, I, do we really know that? What about these you know, additional processing steps, additional chemicals that are used in those foods? Could those be contributing in some way? Personally, I think that's probably not going to turn out to be the answer. I think simpler things like calorie density and palatability, reward value, like how seductive the foods are, I think those are going to probably end up explaining why we tend to eat more of certain types of ultra-processed foods rather than less processed foods. Uh, but that is a matter of ongoing debate. We know ultra-processed foods aren't just junk foods. It applies to flavoured yoghurt, certain sauces, ready-made packaged meals. Also products that might be considered more healthy, plant-based meats or vegan substitutes. Does that mean some ultra-processed foods are better than others? Dr Melissa Lane is from Deakin University's Food and Mood Centre. We need more research and it's really hard to to talk about the healthfulness of certain ultra-processed foods over others when we do have this huge body of evidence that suggests even when you control for those things like salt, sugar and fat, there seems to be something there above and beyond macronutrient composition. So whether or not it's the structure and the size of food particles or the the number of additives or the type of additives that you're putting into ultra-processed foods, we just don't know enough. But what we do know is that when you consume ultra-processed foods and they make up a large proportion of your overall diet, then that's when you tend to see this link with adverse health outcomes. Nova is adding something unique. I don't think it's either or. I think nutrients of concern are important, but I also think the level of food processing, the level of industrial food processing is equally important and complementary. The concept of ultra-processed came out of Brazil, but other countries like Argentina, Chile and Mexico are also approaching these foods in a different way. What they've done, they've combined this really powerful advocacy. So they've mobilised these consumer groups, these public health groups, these env- even the environmental groups, are all forming these big coalitions, very powerful coalitions. They're lobbying policymakers. They're getting champions in parliament to really back this cause. And you get the recipe for successful public health uh, policy change. I was just in Mexico City that has warning labels on products that are high in salt, saturated fat and sugar. And um, I think half the products on the shelves have these warning labels. And the power of these warning labels is that even children can understand them and children understand that if there are a lot of those black warning labels, they shouldn't buy the product. In a perfect world, there would be a better public health response and, you know, changing to agriculture and all of those things that are possible but potentially quite hard to do. A lot of these foods are really cheap and for a section of the population, access to them is the difference between eating or not eating. So in the short term, when we still have this system, what can those people do? 
That's one of the most crucial questions, right? Because it's it's very hard for us to come along and say, you know, we should be taxing, regulating these foods that are so cheap for so many people, and people, you know, rely are relying on them um, to just feed themselves, feed their families. You know, that's a matter of equity of of food justice. But I think what that question, even even that we ask that question, says so much about the nature of our food system that we've created this dependency on ultra-processed foods for a huge part of our population, and it's the disadvantage part of our population. In the short term, look, that's going to be really tough. In the long term, we need to fundamentally change uh, our whole food system, the economics of it. You know, why are these foods so cheap? Why are people depending on them? How can we make healthy, fresh, minimally processed foods, meals, cuisines that are that are convenient, that are healthy for people, uh, affordable? Phil Baker is from the School of Exercise and Nutrition Sciences at Deakin University. Marion Nessel is a molecular biologist and nutritionist. Melissa Lane is from the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. Thanks also to Kevin Hall from the National Institute of Health in the United States and culinary historian Laura Shapiro. Also in the program, Stephen Guillenay, author of The Hungry Brain. This rear vision was produced by me, Jen Leake, and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.